Hello, and welcome to Lops and Familiar, the show that remembers that Daddy Dewdrop's 1971 top 10 smash Chickaboom Don't You Just Love It was originally recorded for the cartoon series Sabrina and the Groovy Ghoulies, where it was performed by the Rolling Gravestones. I'm not sure they really improved on the band name there. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody ever seems to, although this time with a bit of a spooky twist, is book reviewer Joanne Shepherd. Jo, what are you up to? Where can we find it? You can find me on Twitter, where I'm Red Sky at night. I know it's called X now, but no one's ever going to call it that, are they? It's going to be... I'm convinced it's going to go back to being... It's going to ditch the X name and go back to being called Twitter, just like Consignia went back to being called Royal Mail. So I'm on there, where I'm Red Sky at night. I'm on Blue Sky as Red Sky at night as well. And I also have a blog, a book reviews blog, called Breakfast at Libraries, so you can find me on there too. Well, I'm wondering if you've ever tackled on there. There was a... high in novelisation with your first choice which is now very very hard to find but it started off as a one-off TV play so let's find out what it is Okay, the familiar drama-rama opening sting there, and the opening of an episode that might not be quite so familiar, unless you were as frightened of it as you were. So, Joe, what was this? This was a drama-rama episode called The Exorcism of Amy, which I saw as a young kid and was absolutely, properly, properly terrified by it. And I actually watched it again on YouTube about 15 years ago, and I was still quite frightened. (laughs) It's just so unsettling. The premise is a girl called Amy, who's played by EastEnders Lucy Benjamin as a child, is adopted or fostered by a family, and they are aware that she has sort of behavioural problems. And when she first arrives, she's extremely sort of meek and quiet and kind of nervy. And her her foster sister is kind of quite disdainful of her for that reason, really. But it soon becomes clear, or the foster sister works out, that Amy is possessed by a spirit called Amelia, who I think is sort of Amy's own imaginary friend. Amy is sort of orphaned and in the care system and has invented an imaginary friend to sort of because she's lonely. And that imaginary friend has become, has sort of started to possess her and kind of compels her to behave badly and be destructive and so on. And her foster sister, who I think is called Elizabeth, I think, finds out and decides that they'll get rid of Amelia, the evil spirit, once and for all. But there's a horrible twist at the end which is that i mean i don't think i don't think i have to give a spoiler warning because this was broadcast in about 1984 or something but the twist at the end is that amy frees herself of amelia but is then possessed by elizabeth who is every bit as unpleasant as amelia and it's just it's so bleak and so there's no hope to it so it's quite unusual for a children's story in that respect that it doesn't have a happy ending and Amy herself is so lonely and sort of powerless and it's just going to go on and on she's just gone from one horrible situation into another and it's really 
really it's really frightening really sinister and creepy Elizabeth actually says at the end of it turns around directly to the camera and says I didn't promise you a happy ending yes because the whole thing the story is told from Elizabeth's point of view so you are kind of you're sort of aligned with Elizabeth as you watch it and then she turns around and you'd feel properly betrayed at the end that she's done this and yeah and as she said and she looks right at the camera and you just think oh you piece of work (laughs) you you horrible piece of work it's also really the whole look of it is quite interesting as well because it's filmed in a really peculiar sort of minimalist set with quite odd lighting and I like to think it's kind of a nod to sort of German expressionism but I think it was probably just cheap (laughs) so it looks a bit odd it's unsettling in that it doesn't really look like other things that you would see on a tv kids drama so it looks peculiar and The whole pace of it is quite slow and it is one of those things where there is a gradual building of it just feels so ominous and you kind of think that you're going to get this sense of relief at the end and what you get is exactly the opposite of that you get this sort of crushing sense of bleak misery <laughs> and it, yeah and it's, it's it's properly really frightening and poor Amy is just so and Lucy Benjamin who plays Amy plays the part very well because she does seem she's very good at being kind of nervous and a bit scared and a bit vulnerable and you do feel you feel so sorry for her yeah she doesn't say anything for the first seven minutes yeah she's completely silent she's like mousy silent in fact i think she is a mouse there's a fancy dress party where she dresses as a mouse and elizabeth dresses as a bat i think and that's the first sort of warning that something might be up <laughs> yeah i was so scared of it as a child that i literally lost sleep over it and couldn't sleep because i was thinking about it and being scared the other thing is that there's sort of repeated use of the nursery rhyme boys and girls come out to play which was also the tune that our local ice cream van played <laughs> So whenever the ice cream van came round, I'd have this kind of mixed feelings of excitement, ice cream, but also like I might be about to be possessed by an evil spirit. So did you get either a haunted house or a Dracula from the ice cream van thinking, oh, that's made me feel better? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I would have in- I would have always enjoyed a haunted house, Dracula lolly, the ones with the sort of ghosty faces, any of those. I, I loved anything like that. Dramarama itself, though, so many separate editions of it made such an impression on huge numbers of children watching mm. that I think it's surprised mm. that forgotten though for anyone who doesn't know it ran for most of the 80s and it was I say drama but there was obviously a lot of horror in it a lot of comedy satire you know social realism and so on but it was made by different weeks all of the ITV network and what's interesting this is actually from the first series from 1983 which is subtitled Spooky yeah. everything in it was a ghost story or something to that effect there was War Games with Caroline the Danny Roberts mm. show the Ghostly Earl which people never remember because it doesn't count because that was a comedy yeah, yeah and everything else was serious but apparently the idea was to have each series of drama armor would have a theme but they found that getting a single episode on any theme out of some of the itv regions was a bit like trying to prize open the 20 year old tin of radiator enamel <laughs> with a huge chisel so i think they just went for anything goes but i think that worked out better because you got all kinds of disparate things like i mean the things that people might know the most are there were three actual spin-offs from it there was dodger bonzo and the rest which is the sort of comedy drama about the care home which had lee ross who's like your impressed gang in it children's ward of course came out of it i didn't know that yeah there's an episode called blackbird singing in the dead of night which was written by Kay Ah. bella and paul abbott who obviously then went on to write children's ward and it somehow they got away with ending with blackbird by the beatles and also the bubblegum brigade which is that weird bill oddy sitcom basically it was kind of the goodies but not quite where they went around helping people it just there wasn't 
just as much speeded up film in it, I think, because they couldn't afford it. And there was also, people may know, there's an episode called Mr. Stabs with David Jason as a kind of black arts magician where his origin was never fully explained. That's really interesting because there was an earlier... Are you aware of a series called Ace of Wands in the early 70s? Yes. Tempest yeah, Television where yeah. Mr. Stabs was like a main villain in that played by Russell Hunter who was lonely in Callan. And Thames oh, yeah, yeah. later did a sort of precursor drama-rama called Shadows where it was scary one-off plays for children where they tried to get a Mr. Stabs series he's in through the back door and that because he's a very kind of charismatic villain but that didn't take off but obviously they tried again in drama armor and so they were pushing this villain from what was already a 10 year old series by that point trying to get him off the ground again people may know those ones but all kinds of other things like there were those weird linked ones called the young person's guide to getting their ball back and the young person's guide to going backwards in the world just about a boy who found himself being judged by what can they be described as a group of work short character actors playing eccentric weird figures <laughs> there was purple passion video which is a weird thing about a pop star who reluctantly allows some fans to be in this video and then they become more famous than him the comeuppance of captain cat which was written by a disgruntled doctor who writer which is basically an attack on the doctor who production team at that point <laughs> all kinds of things like that josephine joe which is another really scary one there was what was the one with we had david tennant and peter capaldi in it both very young the secret of croftmore that was it and so you got all these amazing different things not all of them work quite as well. I don't think Mighty Mum and the Pet Nappers was a particularly <laughs> strong high point of it. But you did get something different every week. And sometimes it was terrifying, sometimes it wasn't. But I maintain that that introductory sting was terrifying enough on its own. You didn't need it to be a horror episode. You know, that curtain <laughs> going across with the vocoder voice and that scene. Yeah, yeah. Very eerie, the opening credits. I only really remember scary ones. I know there were others, but I was always sort of disappointed if it wasn't scary. I was always disappointed when they were meant to be funny because they never really were and I wanted them to be scary and with weird twists and a strange atmosphere but I think a lot of I mean you mentioned Paul Abbott before and I think a lot of really acclaimed screenwriters sort of cut their teeth on drama drama, didn't they there's a lot of acting talent you know got mm. their first breaks in that there's loads of things that I probably just don't remember were actually drama drama. there's probably lots of bits of television that I can remember and think oh yeah what was that thing and it was probably just an episode of drama drama because there were so many of them and like you say they were so varied and it wasn't something I kind of thought it wasn't like appointment television for me it wasn't like I thought oh I must watch Drama Rama if it was on if I'd stumbled across it I'd watch it but it wasn't something where I would always think oh I must watch that it'll be really good because it was incredibly patchy <laughs> yes you never knew what you were going to get no no and sometimes the ITV regional I don't be a giveaway if it was Thames it was going to be good or if it was TVS but if it was Grampian you might be struggling a bit <laughs> it was a bit like a chocolate box where you know where you used to get that little slip saying occasionally it may be necessary to replace a sweet with one of equally high quality yeah and it was never equally high quality was it it was always like oh we've replaced it with this orange cream no but you really did get and this is surprising i think there's that whole weird kind of snobbery thing about the time frame of when things were allowed to be scary for children in from a modern perspective because this is the 80s yeah it gets written out there's so many really one of the very last ones because it ended in 1989 and i say you can blame margaret thatcher more than anyone else because one of the main reasons it ended was the broadcasting white paper which <laughs> shook up the whole itv regional structure yeah and with that impending it was sort of wound down but one of the very last ones was back to front about the boy who his reflection took over him oh that, that rings was terrifying a bell. i think i do remember that one although again i probably wouldn't have remembered it was drama rama but i think i do remember that anything with doppelgangers is extremely scary in my 
review. But this really is. I think it looks more like a play for today or something. It does. When you watch it, it doesn't feel like a children's... Apart from the fact that there are children in it, it doesn't feel like a children's programme. The themes of it feel very grown up, I think. And the idea of this child who's in the care system and has invented something to sort of curb her loneliness and her sadness. And then the fact that she just goes from one awful situation to another and she's powerless. It's making a really serious point about the lives of some children. And as I like to say, it just feels like it all feels like quite adult. It feels like it's got quite adult themes. And at the end, obviously, it doesn't have a happy ending, which was really unusual in kids things at the time. It does feel more like a play for today. Definitely. It would absolutely stand up in that kind of slot, I think. Well, what struck me rewatching it in preparation for this was it reminded me a lot, not sort of stylistically, but in terms of the ambiguity of is it actually a supernatural thing or is she projecting her problems onto somebody else? else that's yeah. basically the singing yeah. detective yeah it's yeah. more or less it, the same yeah. narrative structure yeah. and yet and, you know and, you wouldn't see this on well i mean to be fair the singing detective doesn't make it onto lists of 100 greatest programs ever <laughs> now because it's not american and streaming <laughs> but it's more or less the same concept sorry if it's just more than singing detective for anyone but you know <laughs> You've had enough chances to see it by now. It does feel a bit like that. And also the kind of bleakness reminds me of that too. And kind of children being really cruel to each other as well. is a bit Dennis Potterish. It makes me think of Blue Remembered Hills. Like I say, it is properly, it's very sophisticated plot. And I just think that watching it at the age of seven was probably quite a formative thing for me, even though I was properly traumatised for quite some time and still haven't quite got over it, if I'm being honest. I can't imagine a load of like TV execs sitting around watching that and thinking like, yeah, this is fine. This is fine for kids. And just whacking that out at like, you know, in a four o'clock slot. And I'm guessing with you, like with me, it's one of those rare instances where, because you're familiar with somebody from something very early on, that's always who they are to you. Because I know when Lucy Benjamin turned up in Doctor Who later that year, I thought, that's Amy. And then, obviously, when she was in Press Gang, I thought, that's Amy. When she turns up in EastEnders, that's Amy. And then she's on the cover of FHM, you think, that's Amy, but this is feeling a bit weird yeah, now. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Amy, but this is wrong. When she was in EastEnders, she also played someone who was quite kind of vulnerable and quite weak, if I remember rightly. Her character was quite sort of downtrodden and quite sort of nervy and a bit sort of scared of Phil Mitchell, who I think she was dating in it at the time. And so I did just think, like, this is just Amy. Amy's just grown up now, and she's still... <laughs> she's still leading a really miserable life <laughs> poor girl okay well had you actually found drama drama so scary that you turned over to the other channel you might not have much more luck as we'll find out in this clip here i sat before the fire with a glass in my hand i can assure you said i that it will take a very tangible ghost to frighten me it is your own choosing said the man with the withered arm the old woman sat staring hard into the fire. You've never seen the likes of this house, I reckon, she said, her pale eyes wide open. I put my empty glass on the table. Well, I said, if I see anything tonight, I shall be so much the wiser, for I come to the business with an open mind. It's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm once more. Okay, 
Freddy Jones there reading out a very scary story. Joe, what was this? When I was very little, so very little, so maybe, I mean, probably sort of four or five, I think, there was a programme on BBC, I think BBC One, that was sort of in a, it was on in a kind of post-kids programming, but then like before the news sort of slot. And it was called Spine Chillers. And it was kind of, I mean, the best way to describe it is of a sort of terrifying Jackanory. It was basically very simple in concept because it was just sort of fairly esteemed actors, normally wearing Victorian clothing, who were reading classic ghost stories. Authors like M.R. James, that kind of thing. And they were normally sort of sitting in a big armchair or in a Victorian house or sitting at a desk writing with a quill pen or something or in, a, in an old library. But I only really have... I, Jonathan Price, I remember doing one, and so you, Freddie Jones, I think, did more than one. But my memories of the actual stories being read are quite vague because I was so paralysed with fear by the opening credits. The opening credits were like a black and white, a sort of monochrome animation of a journey through an abandoned house with all the kind of appropriate sound effects. So you'd have like a thunderclap in the background, heavy rain, a clock ticking slowly, and maybe like a bell tolling in <laughs> and stuff and then it kind of ended with the door handle turning and the door creaking slowly open and it was so atmospheric and so frightening also in my memory of it is that it only ever seemed to be on at a time of year when it was kind of dark by about four o'clock so i associate it with it being dark horrible weather outside and you know kind of wintry autumnal probably like a blustering wind outside and it just seemed so eerie and so sinister i actually remember i've got a really vivid memory of being about four or five and being like literally like rooted to the spot when it came on and i wanted to turn the television off because the credits frightened me but i was sort of too scared to go up to the television to do it because we didn't have a remote control in those days and I really wanted to turn the TV off because I sort of thought if I turn the TV off before the door creaks open, I'll be safe. <laughs> but I was sort of too scared to go up to the television. And this was on, this was on at like, what, like about like five o'clock or something. It was properly, it was really, really upsetting. It was always on, my mum was always just cooking the tea when it was on. So I also associate it with like the smell of like mince cooking or something or like the chops being grilled. <laughs> yeah, it was always, it always really, really bothered me. They would announce it and I would go, oh no, I'm going to have to watch these opening credits again because it would scare me so much. Well, it was actually, as far as I can tell, because you are right, that's the magic roundabout slot it was in, the pre-news slot. And they did, yeah. they did this with a few things around that time, to be fair. There was Welcome to Woodhouse, which I really liked, which was people like Martin Jarvis reading out Uncle Fred flits by and things like that. I think it was about encouraging children to read classic literature. But mm. for some reason, about the horror stories of Sam, and like you say, there was a lot of M.R. James, H.G. Wells, John Wyndham, it was people mm. like John Woodbine and Jonathan Price reading them out, you know, real sort of proper actor actors. Yeah. And yes, it well, if you look at the schedules, you get things like in one example looked up, you get like Crackerjack and Battle of the Planets and News Round, and then this. <laughs> I think it's quite telling that they were later repeated in that slot on BBC Two where they put things like Tucker's Look that were for the sort of in-between audience that weren't quite teenagers yet. That was yeah, up against it... the news. And you are right about that time of year though, because you mentioned that's reminded me of I've got such a strong memory of like you say when it's getting dark about 4pm I used to go for piano lessons two doors down in our road and walking back on nights when it got dark early you know two houses away mm. if I heard say the opening theme from Chucky it would be fine if it was at home watching it or indeed the drama armistice 
coming from another house with the window <laughs> open or heaven forbid a bit of a public information film that oh. walk would seem to last for about eight years yeah absolutely absolutely i remember coming home from i used to go to brownies and it was actually in my primary school it was held in my primary school school hall so that was literally just at the top of our street pretty much you just had to walk to the top of the road and cross over and I remember coming back from brownies you know sort of seven or eight when it was dark and wintry and you'd sort of see that kind of glow of other people's televisions coming out of their living room windows and it would always seem a bit like what are they watching in there and it would always seem a bit unnerving and a bit you know I'd always be glad to get in cold blustery probably some sort of dark clouds scudding across a full moon that's the kind of weather i associate with spine chillers being on it is really creepy though and around that time children's bbc did seem to be experimenting with that with nobody really batting an eyelid because the things that i always come back to was they tried to do ghost plays around christmas a couple of times mm. in the early 80s there was ghost in the water which had that brilliant radiophonic workshop soundtrack that's on one of the radiophonic workshop albums i think it's the sound house that's on but also the bells of astacote based on astacote which is now a book you're very fond of but both oh, of those of were so grim those plays <laughs> mm, yeah. and again they should be held up more than they are they have the misfortune mm. to fall outside that kind of hauntological time frame so mm. they're not really counted but they belong with the adult a ghost story for christmases they're more or less the same thing as far as i'm concerned it's a ghost story for christmas is the correct plural for that we should ask mark <laughs> yeah. gatiss mark gatiss is he'll know <laughs> Ghost story for Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> Ghost it story is... for Chris Mai, maybe. Chris Mai. <laughs> They do feel like that, though. They definitely do. And like you mentioned, The Bells of Astacot, which is one of my favourite things that's ever been on television and, again, haunted me for years and years and years. And the fact that they were... The, the stories they chose are obviously, like you say, classic ghost stories. But they don't feel... I mean, those ghost stories weren't written for children, obviously. The characters are adults and they're about adults and they're being read to you kind of by an adult. So it didn't really feel like it was... Watching it, it didn't feel like it was aimed at children at all. But I assume it was because it was in that slot or as you say maybe the sort of in-between audience but it felt almost like sort of scary grown-up Jackanory Jackanory for adults it was the Jackanory production team as far as I can tell I would say the name Spine Chillers is trying to make it a little more comforting than it is yeah. it's not quite the hammer house of horror that is it but no. it, it's sort of you know oh this is all right you're allowed to watch this and also <laughs> they did vary the stories a bit I mean, no less frightening in its own way but they did the stolen bacillus the is it bacillus or bacillus i've never been sure the hg wells short story which obviously is a bit more science fictiony but yeah you know, they did mix it around a bit i assume in an attempt to make it a little more palatable but it's only so palatable you can make these things yeah and there are no i can't think of a single mr james story that isn't really quite frightening <laughs> and i love that kind of thing i love those stories now so maybe it was good for me maybe that sowed the seeds of my kind of lifelong obsession with kind of horror and ghost stories and classic gothic fiction and things like that but yeah as i say my main memory of it was being paralyzed with fear wanting to turn the television off while my mum was cooking mints basically <laughs> 
But I think it is somehow seen as acceptable if these things have some kind of literary association or highbrow or, or yeah, classic films yeah. or whatever. Because I always say one of the things that I remember terrifying me the most genuinely when I'm not sure how old I was when this was on, when Radio 4 did Lord of the Rings. Mm. And in the very last episode where Gollum gets the ring and again, apologies for spoiling the last book of the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. You know, he's so excited. He loses his footing. He falls into the crack of doom. And just hearing Peter Woodthorpe's voice just echoing, you know, screaming as he went down. Nobody would have thought twice about that. Nobody would have bothered. Had I said to anyone, you know, that still bothers me. I wouldn't listen to it. But had I said to my parents I was a bit scared of Gollum falling in the crack of doom, they probably would have thought, that's all right. That's Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, there is this faux respectability that's bestowed on things by... Well, in this, you also have the additional factors of actors in frilly shirts. Yeah. They were reading from a National Trust property, so it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there still is, but at one time there was a Ladybird version of Dracula. I mean, Ladybird, we're talking kind of like aimed at like six-year-olds, surely. It's in no... Obviously, comedy Dracula, cartoon Dracula, you know, for little kids, seems reasonable. But just sort of a Ladybird version of Bram Stoker's Dracula doesn't seem quite right to me. But because it's a classic, it's fine. It's not like you would have a Ladybird version of Stephen King's It, but it's fine if it's Dracula. It's fine if it's Victorian. You'll be all right with that. Well, possibly a measure of the overall appropriateness of this as a venture is that the thing it reminded me of the most was... Now, obviously, I never saw these at the time. On the Doctor Who Key to Time series box set, as extras, it has Tom Baker on BBC Two's Late Night Tales from 1979 where he did a week of reading out modern horror stories and they're genuinely terrifying ones with Tom Baker going like he thought he'd seen a ghost maybe he had and you know that that sort of thing but the very fact that it's called late night stories yeah and it's Tom Baker presenting it yeah about 18 months later if that you get this for children yeah madness absolute madness but i seem to remember book tower being quite frightening wasn't it very very frightening uh, very very see i as a child that's sort of two things that i love to this day are books and scary things so i think like book tower was ideal for me because it made books seem a bit scary (laughs) which for me was a plus it increased the sort of sense of mystery and excitement of cracking open a new book But yeah, really scary. Well, I don't know if this was a universal phenomenon, but for me, one of the scariest things as a very young child was being in the local library, being in the children's section, picking out what you wanted to take out, then having to walk to find one parent or another through the adult section. You didn't know whether you were going to go past, you know, the celebrity biographies or the bound collection, the punch or whatever, or whether it would be the novels, which all (laughs) seem to be sort of, you know, Nazi officers with the half monster face. That was the thing. I seem to remember like most novels when I was a child, because I think my mum reads a lot of like crime fiction and my dad read a lot of kind of crime fiction and spy thrillers and things like that. And at the time when I was a kid, they all had really horrible covers, really (laughs) frightening covers with sort of like, you know, as you say, Nazi officers, blood a gun hidden in a basket of flowers or something. Even the sort of Agatha Christie covers of the like 70s and 80s were quite quite frightening, quite grim. There was always old school really bottles of poison on Agatha Christie. Bottles. Yeah, with a, yeah, with a little there? skull and crossbones yeah. on it, yeah, just to warn you that it was poison. Yeah, they were always quite sinister, so I know what you mean. Books for adults seemed quite scary when I was little. 
But did spine chillers inspire you to read any of the real thing then? Not for a long time, I'm guessing. Well, you say that, but I because I was an annoyingly precocious reader, I did read a lot of sort of M.R. James, E.F. Benson kind of ghost stories at quite a young age. It probably did inspire me in some ways, because although I was terrified of it, I was one of those kids that quite liked, was quite fascinated by being scared. I'm still like that now, and I've always been like that. I've always, I loved anything spooky, anything horror-related, ghosts, even though I would often be quite frightened. I would always kind of go back to that. So I did used to like an Armada ghost book or a, a ghost stories compilation. So I did read quite a lot of classic ghost stories when I was probably a bit too young to be reading them, to be honest. Well, if they ever reboot Spine Chillers, they should get you into host. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. I would love to sit in an armchair in a Victorian house in a frilly shirt, perhaps doing some writing with a quill pen and a wax seal and then read out Casting the Runes. I'd love to. Well, earlier on in the children's BBC schedules, you could have drawn inspiration from something that I'm guessing you found a little less scary, but I don't doubt a couple of children had sleepless nights over. She's a Halloween witch, and I wonder if you can guess what she's made out of. Her face is, in fact, a plastic lemon, and this very witch-like looking hair is the top of a mop, and the stick part of the mop is the bit that you actually hold to wiggle the witch around. I suppose, really, she's a sort of puppet witch. And you can even put your fingers up if you want to inside the arms and work her that way, like that. OK, Valerie Singleton there on Blue Peter demonstrating how to make a witch. Now, I've got a frightening thing about Blue Peter I'll come back to in a minute. <laughs> Joe, did you make one of these? Yes, I did. I made witch puppets. Which, now, I can't have seen this because Valerie Singleton would have been before my Blue Peter time. So I can't have seen them making them. But I suspect they must have been in, the instructions must have been in one of the Blue Peter annuals or something like that. Or my mum had just written it down because she thought they were quite clever. Because they were the best ever Blue Peter make. Everyone talks about the Thunderbirds Island thing and your flammable advent crown. But the witch puppets were really simple to make, really easy and surprisingly effective. And I made them for my craft badge in brownies. <laughs> I made a witch and a wizard. The only thing was, like a lot of the Blue Peter makes, they used things which they seemed to think you would have lying around. <laughs> but nobody, <laughs> nobody <laughs> would have these things just like lying around. So your parents would probably have to go out and buy these things specially. And I'm pretty sure my mum and dad must have done for my brownies craft badge project. Because to make your witch, you needed one of those really old fashioned dish mops with a wooden handle and a sort of stringy mop head. And a jiff squeezy lemon that you would have on pancake time. You would also need enough felt, either black or navy felt, to cut out the sort of witch's dress. So, I mean, none of these things are things that we ever had lying around. <laughs> so probably, like, ultimately, probably more expensive than just buying a puppet in a shop. The squeezy lemon container formed the witch's face. So the kind of pointy knobbly bit on the end of the lemon was sort of the witch's nose. And then you kind of speared the lemon with your dish mop. So the stringy part of the dish mop formed the witch's hair. And then you made like a felt dress for it. So you had a hand puppet and you could then hold the stick of the mop 
to manipulate your witch. And you then had to make a paper witch's hat to go on top, which is actually quite fiddly and difficult and involves having to draw around something round or get a pair of compasses. And it's all quite complicated, but remarkably effective. I remember them being genuinely really good. And my efforts were very much praised at Brownies when I did my craft badge. So obviously they stood me in good stead, but genuinely a really good make. But nobody else knows how to make them. I've mentioned this to loads of people and said, oh, did you ever make one of those witch puppets with a squeezy Jif lemon? And they're like, what what are you talking about? Well, I'm just going to get my Blue Peter scary moment out of the way. And (laughs) believe it or not, I know that sentence doesn't make sense to most people, but there is logic and reason behind this. Now, I normally, as a child, I was fascinated by anything where you saw, they let the mask slip on television and you saw how it worked. You know, when the timer clock came up before a programme or things like that. Oh, yeah, anything like that, yeah. I loved once where there was a continuity slide for Happy Days, but the announcer had clearly forgotten to fade the microphone up. So it's just a photo of the fonds for about 30 seconds silently. (laughs) I remember thinking that was because it's too cool to have an announcement. Hey... But Blue Peter, which I've got to say, even though I am in the new Doctor Who magazine 60 moments in time anniversary celebration being nice about Blue Peter, as a child, I did find it a bit too much like extra school. Mm. I would watch it reluctantly because they often covered things like, for example, the tripods. I liked seeing behind the scenes of things. I just didn't really get on with it. But, you know, because it went out live... Mm. And obviously they did all the titles and so on live on it. You know, it ended with, I mean, a few people have told me they found this in itself scary, but a zoom in on the Blue Peter boat, or rather it zoomed forward. One time they didn't switch back to the BBC Globe quick enough. And somebody must have yanked the transparency or whatever it was <laughs> off away from in front of the camera. So the boats sort of whizzed away sort Ooh. of the top right. And I found that really creepy Ooh. for reasons I yeah. cannot explain. Because it kind of felt as well when you were young, like like the way on ITV they had InVision continuity announcers and they had the adverts. And ITV felt like next door, whereas the BBC felt like, I don't know, a train station or something. It felt like things were going on, things were happening, and you couldn't see the people doing it. Yeah. So I think it felt weird because of that. When I used to hear continuity announcers on the BBC as a child, I always used to sort of think, well, where are they? Where are they sitting? When I was really tiny, I obviously didn't know what like their kind of little booth would have looked like. So I used to sort of think stuff like, where are they? Where are they sitting? What sort of room are they in? What can they see while they're talking? <laughs> I always used to find that quite weird. And like you say, if anything ever went sort of slightly wrong or when things would, things freezing on the screen for slightly too long always used to really unnerve me. Because it's just like, how long is too long? Has this just gone a little bit over the, oh, it's still on the screen. And then eventually something would pop up to say that there was a technical problem. A Blue Peter ship whizzing off screen like that would have unsettled me, I'm sure. Well, I have a distinct memory of when I wasn't quite old enough to understand that, you know, there were such things as different studios and some programmes had already been made and were being shown and so on. But Mm. I think I used to think all of television happened in the one place. But I remember genuinely thinking, what happens when they do Mastermind when Camberwick Green has been on? I remember thinking Magnus (laughs) Magnusson must kick the music box out of the way (laughs) as he sat down in the chair. Just sweeps everything out. (laughs) Quite angrily, I pictured it as well. I'm not having puppets on my programme. 
when I was a child, I, for some reason, thought that, although I understood that the two Ronnies was not live, for some reason, I had it in my head that they must sort of record it as if it was live, <laughs> so that they must have to really quickly change costumes <laughs> between, between sketches, which is obviously ridiculous, and I don't know why I thought that, and I don't remember thinking about any other programmes, either just the two Ronnies. On the slightly lighter note, mentioning continuity announcers, I genuinely thought when I was young, that, you know the way the certain phrases they will always use before and after certain programmes, like, when have I got news for you returned, it always used to be, and now, oh no, they're back. But <laughs> after the two Ronnies, it was always like, I'm Messrs Corbett and Barker, we'll be back next week. And always, I used to think... Always Messrs Corbett and I used to Barker, think it was yeah. because they were Messrs that messed around. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone ever deserved the appellation, it was those two. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> absolutely. That's excellent. And yeah, and appropriate. I can see why. I can absolutely see why that made sense to you. But back to Blue Peter and their makes. I've actually got an offshoot of this, which is I have, I still have it actually, the 1981 Blue Peter book 18, the one where they're all in Victorian gear on the cover. I know the one you mean. <laughs> I think I must have been given because there's a Doctor Who feature in it. Inside, there is also a make for witch masks and hats. And even that still feels a bit too... You know, they're trying to be scary, but they've just got bits of crepe paper on their face and, you know, car circles over their eyes. It's still too much like school. It is a bit schoolish, I suppose. I was Maybe I was just a very nerdy child because I was sort of really like doing things like that. But it was a bit schooly, I think. My mum worked in childcare, so she worked in a playgroup. So she always used to be very good at just sort of... She would always just have loads of ideas up her sleeve for kind of kids' craft projects. So come Halloween, she would be like, oh, yeah, a scary owl will use handprints for the feathers and the wings and stuff like that. And she would just know that because she'd made all these a million times with kids at the playgroup that she worked at. So I was quite used to kind of making things like that. I do remember making some sort of witch mask for a Halloween thing at school and mine being like noticeably more frightening than any of the other kids because <laughs> I just like things like that so much. I also remember when I was very little at primary school, we were infant school, actually. We were doing some sewing. So we had like felt shapes that we had to sew together to make kind of cuddly toy and I said right you can do there were two shapes one was a, for a mouse and the other one was kind of you could make it into a cat by adding ears essentially two circles on top of each other and they said right do you want to make a cat or a mouse and I said oh I'd like to do a raven I'm about five at this point <laughs> I started early with the horror so yeah witch puppets witch masks however school like I would have always been very on board with that which is generally I loved when I was a child loved anything witch related they were much more of a thing in those days I mean you only have to look at how many witches were on and I can't be witched as part of children's TV because it was shown as that over here they're wearing mm. children's television they're wearing children's literature pop records mainly in the 60s but there's so many about witches there's Misty Comic which was ostensibly oh, yes. edited by yes. a teenage witch well witch was a whole genre of book my local library in the children's library they would have like little stickers on the spines of the book so you could kind of tell what they were about so you would have like if it was a book about pets or animals it would have a little paw print sticker and so on and the sort of horror one was actually a skull but there was also a witch's hat which was for books specifically about witches so they must have been 
so popular in kids fiction at the time that they warranted their own sticker and I loved anything like that I loved the worst witch I loved Lizzie Dripping and the witch and like I like the little witch which is a, a translated from German I think by a writer called Ottfried Prisler in fact she had a pet raven so that might be why I wanted to make the raven when I was in for school lots and lots of witch themed there was a really good series about a witch's cat called Carbonell Gobelino the witch's cat I could go on and on there are lots of American ones as well there was one called the Wednesday Witch that was an American book that I like. I think she flew on a vacuum cleaner instead of a broom, if I remember rightly. So yeah, witch was a whole thing. So like witch puppets and witch masks kind of would have fitted in with the, the sort of prevailing mood of the time, I suppose. Well, there was also, I've literally just remembered now, Hecate Hackety, presented by George Cole, oh, yes, which is a yes, witch, yeah? Yes. But my main one that I was come back to is an episode of The Herbs, where a witch called Belladonna just turns up in the herb garden and tries to basically, you know, the analogy is Belladonna growing like wildfire and choking yeah. all the other plants. Mm. She basically tries to take them all over, and it's only Dill the dog. Because I assume because Dill resists Belladonna in real life, is able to fight back against her. That is actually quite frightening when you watch it now. Yeah, I used to be very frightened of the witch in Chalton and the Wheelies as well. Oh, when I was little, Popping up, just suddenly popping up from a little hole in the ground and cackling. I used to be really, really scared of her. And there was all kinds of other things like, well, as we were recently talking about on another podcast, there's Wanda, the Scarlet Witch in Marvel Comics, who I was very taken with. Well, that's weird because, you know, the singing ringing tree, that weird yes, yes, East yeah. German series. Yeah. When the princess is turned into a witch halfway through, the theme is supposed to be her thinking, oh my good God, I'm ugly. What has happened to me? Well, she has green hair and a slightly upturned nose. I actually think she's much more attractive <laughs> like that. I don't know what that says about me, but... If I had to do fancy dress as a child, I always wanted to be a witch because I just thought they were really, I just thought even though I was a bit scared of them, I was also fascinated by them and sort of secretly kind of wanted to be one. I used to read, when I was really tiny, I used to love Mega Mog as well. Mega Mog were the first books I remember like being able to read to myself when I was really tiny with a sort of benevolent witch as the main character. And the very spiky cat. <laughs> very spiky cat, yeah, very spiky. But there were witches everywhere when I was a child. You could barely leave the house without tripping over a witch when I was a kid well you may have wanted to dress up as a witch but ironically i don't think you will have been much helped by your next choice One night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from the slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the mash He did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash Okay, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Bam there performing Monster Mash on Do Not Adjust Your Set in 1968, which is the nearest thing I could find to a clip to illustrate Monsters of the Movies. Joe, what are we reading here? Oh, this was one of my favourite non-fiction books as a child. It actually belonged to my brother. So it was a very slim paperback volume published by a company called Carousel, who I think are now defunct. And it was written by a guy called Dennis Gifford, who used to write a lot of things like this. And it was just like a little paperback. And all it is is a kind of alphabetical list 
of monsters from old films. It starts with The Alligator People, which is from a film in 1959, with a very scary black and white photo of a sort of man with kind of crusty alligator skin. And then I think it finishes with, got it in front of me right now, it finishes with Count Zaroff, who was in a film from 1932 called The Most Dangerous Game. Never heard of it, never seen it, probably doesn't even exist anymore, that film. And that is kind of <laughs> sort of an overriding theme of this book, in that despite the fact that it would have been published in like 70s, I suppose, late 70s. All the films in it are from, well, probably, I don't think there's any that are post mid 60s. They're all films that were really out of date. And all it is, is just a little, a one page kind of synopsis of the film and the monster's role in it. And a full page black and white photo of the monster. A lot of those photos are really creepy. And I remember there was a particular one in it of Bella Lugosi. And I think it was from the island of Dr. Moreau, where he's uh, covered in hair. And there's just these sort of two sort of scary piercing eyes peeping out from an entirely hair-covered face that I used to find very... Island of Lost Souls is the film. It's based on Dr. Moreau. It's a particular one where I used to have to sort of shut the book very quickly if I stumbled across that page by accident. The other thing about it is that a lot of the pictures in it crop up again or are redrawn because they're photographs in Monsters of the Movies but a lot of them crop up again in kind of art form in the Horror Top Trumps which everyone remembers whenever I'd sort of looked at Horror Top Trumps I'd be thinking hang on that's not that's the wrong monster <laughs> that's not what they're called that's not that's not what that monster's called because they've given them new names in Horror Top Trumps I don't know for, for some sort of copyright reasons for some reason I don't know but yeah it had all the sort of classic universal monsters but then some really obscure ones like the abominable dr fibes was in it and some of the more obscure hammer films monsters were in it like carmilla the vampire and i would i would sort of constantly borrow this book off my brother and then when i sort of got old enough to start watching old horror films i'd be like constantly looking at the tv listings for films that featured in the book a lot of them were really obscure and i was thinking well when am i going to see this i need to see this film and then i would tape them on vhs and i built up a massive collection of tapes off the telly old horror films and I assume my brother's still got his original copy, but I've got a second-hand one that I bought on Amazon from a vicar, weirdly. When I kind of bought it and flipped through it again, like some of the pictures still made me sort of go a bit shivery because they were the ones that really scared me when I was a child. It's brilliant. It's just such a great, it's such a great little book. Such a great little book. 45 pence, apparently, when it was originally published. So a massive bargain. Well, one recurring theme when you see mentions of this online is people saying, including members of League of Gentlemen, back then this was all you had to go on this is yeah, your only resource for knowing anything about old horror cinema of any description and there is that thing the gentlemen always say about you know as kids they all have books like this and there's always one photograph from one <laughs> film that yeah. you never saw and it became yeah. like a holy grail because i was thinking about did i have an equivalent and i thought well i was more interested in i suppose british horror films none of which i got to see at this stage but things like i start counting at our mother's house where the equivalent would have been child psychopaths of the movies and <laughs> I don't think anyone would have published that. Yeah, it was absolutely all that you had to go on. And they obviously that they're the publicity stills have been taken to depict the monster at their most frightening and their most sinister so you get a really an intensified experience just from seeing that photo which often is not at all delivered when you actually see the film but there are lots of films in it that I've still never seen for example there was one that I was particularly fascinated by the monster being called the creeper which was the monster from a film called the brute man from 1946 the creeper was a spine snapping murderer he's described as a terrorized london 
he was played by an actor called Rondo Hatton, who was an American actor who was very odd looking. I mean, the thing is, he was odd looking because he had a congenital condition <laughs> called acromegaly, which sort of caused your kind of features to thicken and enlarge, I think. And so he was a very undeniably a very odd looking man. Apparently, he was a very, very gentle guy. He was a sports journalist, apparently. But there is a particular the full page picture of his face in Monsters of the Movies. It's properly frightening. And obviously, when I saw it as a kid, I didn't know he had a medical condition. I just thought that was his face and I like that was his normal face and he just looked so frightening and it's lit in a really scary way and my brother and I were both obsessed with it and were desperate to see this film. And so much so in fact that when I graduated from university as my congratulations on getting your degree card, my brother just drew me a really good picture of the creeper on a card. <laughs> still never seen that film. Still would love to see it. There's loads of others in there as well. There's one called The Blood Beast Terror which is a Oh yes. Hybrid human moth played by Wanda Ventham. Never seen that one. Barnabas Collins from House of Dark Shadows was sort of a very wrinkled vampire that I was really scared by. Whenever I flick through it, I just every picture is incredibly familiar to me because I just looked at it so many times and read it so many times. I've still never seen Mad Love. The main character, Orlat, loses he's a pianist who loses his hands and has the hands of a murderer grafted on instead. And needless to say, they become quite murdery hands because everyone knows that's how hands work. Anything like that, I absolutely love. I love a grafted on. I love anything where <laughs> grafted on body parts, sentient hands, anything like that is brilliant. Absolutely great. Desperate to see that film. Well, Rondo Hatton was profiled in Jonathan Ross's Incredibly Strange Film Show, and I would put money on Jonathan Ross having had a copy of this. Oh, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. Rondo Hatton was in quite a lot of films, well, because he looked like he did. So he crops up in a lot of kind of B-movies and things like that. I always enjoy trying to spot him in things. But yeah, I imagine Jonathan Ross probably would have had a copy of Monsters of the Movies. Well, that wasn't the only place to find terrifying content in children's books around that time, because it also spread into short stories. Let the wind blow through your hair. Be nice to the big blue sea. Don't be afraid of the man in the moon. Okay, in the absence of any kind of viable clip there, that's David Bowie sounding not at all creepy on 1967's Love You Till Tuesday, advising everyone not to be afraid of the man in the moon. But Joe, why would you think there was nothing to be afraid of? When I was a kid, there was a book in my local library called Nothing to Be Afraid Of. It's an anthology of short stories by an author called Jan Mark, who was a really well-known children's author at the time. And there's something quite sophisticated about the stories. They're kids' stories, but the theme of them is that they are kind of people who have created their own sort of horrors really. You're never quite sure when you read them whether these are imagined horrors or genuine horrors. Some of them are quite funny, some of them are not necessarily horrific as such, some of them are genuinely quite frightening. 
some of them less so, some of them not frightening at all and aren't meant to be frightening. I borrowed this book from the library probably a million times and I've read every single story in it a million times. There are a couple in particular that really stood out for me. There's one about a little boy called Anthony who lives next door to a girl called Jenny and Jenny is very kind of, is very sort of, has a very sunny disposition. She's a little bit bossy. She's quite sort of, she's a bit of a goody two-shoes and Anthony is a very sort of skinny dark-haired child with sort of hollow eyes. I remember it describes his hair curling up at the front like horns and he's not interested and it also describes him as looking like a stunted adult rather than a child as well and he doesn't really like playing with other kids he just wants to do his own thing and he makes a terrifying guy for Guy Fawkes Night which is really like a horrible misshapen sort of a disproportioned thing that's <laughs> called flabber that becomes <laughs> that, everyone beca- that sort of everyone including the adults are kind of quite nervous about so there's that one I really remember because I remember Anthony and flabber I just remembered really well because it is quite creepy or though also quite funny. It's darkly funny, I would say. And there is another one, which is the one that probably most stayed with me, which is called Newell, which is about... (laughs) It's quite hard to explain, actually. I should have thought of this before I suggested it for a podcast, but the premise of the story is that there's a family living in a house and at the bottom of their stairs, they have a stair post like most people have, that you know, the post at the end of the banisters where you normally end up hanging your bag over it or hanging your coat on it. And apparently that's called a Newell post, which I didn't know and theirs has a a sort of a spherical ornament on the top and as a kind of joke one of the kids has made a pointed hat to play a sort of medieval princess I think in in a school play so they've made one of those pointed hats that has a sort of veil from it and they sort of perch this pointed hat on the top of the newel post and then sort of put a coat around it and one of them sort of observes that it looks a bit like a person so they sort of start joking and they call him newel they say oh it's newel so he becomes kind of personified in their heads and the, the boy of the family starts to become a bit unsettled by Newell who is a sort of faceless motionless sort of figure at the bottom of the stairs and he becomes more and more unsettled by him and then one night he is sort of creaking on the stairs and he goes out and has a look and Newell is halfway up the stairs so hang on the stairs are halfway up the stairs the stair post Newell (laughs) is the post at the bottom of the stairs so Newell the post has become has started to climb up the stairs to come and have a look round the top floor of the house. And this sounds ridiculous, obviously, but I promise you it's really eerie and really chilling. And the way that the story ends is that the kid thinks to himself, well, in the morning, if I go down and I rip the hat off the top of the stair post and I take the coat off it, then I'll have destroyed Newell. But then if I do that, I'll be admitting to myself that what I've seen was real. And this is his kind of fundamental problem. Is it a self-created horror or is it a real horror and will dealing with it somehow make it real when he can otherwise kind of tell himself he's imagined it but surely taking the hat off it would confirm that it wasn't real well no because then the act of doing it he's admitting to himself by doing it that it's real if he has a reason to destroy it he's admitting to himself that it's real and that it has to be destroyed i still don't think he's thought this through (laughs) It's a bit like 
I don't know. I think it's a bit like if you're a kid and you've got a, you know, you've got your Monsters of the Movies book and you are scared of the picture of Bella Lugosi in Island of Lost Souls. If you ripped that page out and threw that page away, you would kind of be admitting to yourself that it was a genuine danger. Do you see what I mean? Yes, but you're also making it literally not into a danger by proving it is a piece of paper and or a stir post. So. Yeah, but you haven't because it, it's kind of, it's like it's Schrodinger's stair post because... <laughs> He is simultaneously a stair post and also something more than that. And sort of confronting it is admitting to yourself. You can carry on pretending to yourself that you've imagined it. You can't do that if you have to take steps to destroy it. So, so it's not so much of... whistle I'll come to you as whistle and I'll be some stairs. <laughs> just read it. It's very frightening. <laughs> I'm not doubting that for a second. I just think I wouldn't like to see that boy's algebra exam papers. That's all I'm saying. If I remember rightly, there's a picture of Newell as he's climbing up the stairs as well. And the other thing is that obviously Newell being just a post at the bottom of the banisters kind of thing is that he doesn't have hands or anything like that. There's a description of him climbing the stairs and he sort of... Martin, the kid is called. He's called Martin. And Martin realises... He describes him as having his hand... Newell having his hand on the banister and then he realises that Newell hasn't got any hands. So what is that? Where has that come from? <laughs> there's a picture of Newell kind of standing... as. Martin himself is going down the stairs and Newell is like standing at the bottom of the stairs sort of looming over it. It's really, it's really weird. It's a really, really weird story and just sort of quite clever. See, I think that the final lines in it say that if he destroyed Newell, it would mean that he believed he had seen Newell climbing the stairs. But if he left Newell alone, Newell might walk again. And that's the kind of paradox, if you see what I mean. There's very little about this book out there online. The fact that it was Puffin, 1981, yeah, and it Puffin, had two yeah. different covers, as far as I can tell. There's one sort of a face appearing in a stone wall slash hedge or something, but there's one I actually find creepier, which is just an ordinary row of houses with two kids skipping outside. That looks more ominous, in a way. Yeah, the cover I remember is the one with a girl and a little boy, a younger boy, and they're walking in a park, and there's a sort of evil demon face appearing in the hedge behind them that story is i think the first story in the book which i think is the one that's i think that's the one that is actually called nothing to be afraid of where a girl is kind of babysitting for a little boy who's a real wimp and they go for a walk in the park and she tells him sort of lots of scary stories about things in the park and makes up lots of sort of sinister things to scare him and when he goes back to his parents he sort of is terrified and they keep saying oh he keeps having nightmares he keeps having nightmares but then when they look after him again he says oh will you take me to the park again and tell me those stories again and it's about sort of enjoying being scared and that kids kind of have to be scared and that's how they work through stuff but the one with kids skipping outside there are quite a lot of stories in it that are about quite mundane things there's one in it for example that is about it isn't scary in the scary sense at all but it has got that thing of being a kid where you feel kind of powerless <laughs> where it's about a girl who's at school and she is supposed to be a I think it's choir practice but also hockey practice or something like that and both teachers are kind of in conflict about which one she should be at and they keep sending her back and forth with excuses and reasons and she kind of gets trapped in their conflict as it were and she's kind of powerless and she keeps getting told off by both of them and she doesn't know what to do it ends up she ends up going to neither of them and goes and hides and it sort of ends with her saying and then she had a good old cry because there was no rule against that and that one is about a different kind of fear I think and a different kind of sense of fear that you get as a child so some of them are quite ordinary there's also one really odd one about a girl 
girl who lives next door to there's a bunch of kids in the house next door that she sort of thinks seem like they're not quite real they kind of seem like caricatures of a family of kids and they've got a dog that is like a dog that would be that kids would have in the famous five and things like that and they're always sort of saying things that kids would say in an Enid Blyton book and things like that and it's not particularly frightening but it's quite there's something quite unnerving about it and she is a bit sort of unsettled by these kids and quite fascinated by them so they're not all they're mostly as i say that the whole theme of the book is of the, like the scary things that you make up in your own head i think that's what's clever about it and that's why it really spoke to me as a kid because i was very much the child who would be frightened of things that she'd invented in her own head basically okay well i don't quite know how i'm going to get for your next choice other than that it's sort of about yet another children's book but it's actually a movie based on it The Fence. The Gate. The House. The Door. The Stairway. The Boy. fine line drawn between the walls of reality and the edges of the imagination. Is anybody there? I have dreams, Mum, but they're real. Shouldn't be here. I dream. I'm not drawing! Do you remember anything about the real world? This is the real world. I know Mark. I know him from my dreams. They've come for us. Ooh. It's Dad! Don't let him in! It's only a drawing, Anna. Come on. Picture yourself in the paper house. Okay, trailer there for Paper House 1988, or as I know it, Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr, Faber 1958. Joe, enlighten me. Well, as you say, it is based on Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr, and I think there was also, a, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a black and white kids TV series based on it. Escape Into Night, which was That's actually it. colour, it's just the only surviving copies of black and white. See, I am oh, more familiar with that than I am with Paper House. Oh, that's interesting, because I've never seen Escape Into Night, so it'll be interesting to know how different they are paper house despite being based on obviously a children's book it's very much not a children's film and i think when it i might be wrong but i think when it originally came out it was rated 15 and it came out in i think 1988 but i didn't see it until a couple of years later and it was on channel 4 sort of quite late one night and i was watching i had a tv in my bedroom and i was just watching telly and it came on and i ended up watching it and it's just such a profoundly weird an unsettling film and especially when you don't know what to expect so I was just watching it by chance it came on and I thought this sounds interesting I'll watch this I didn't really know what to expect and it just was so odd and it's about a girl I think she's about 11 and she becomes unwell she's meant to have glandular fever but it seems a lot more serious than that she's like confined to her bed and she's really unwell and while she's ill she sort of starts drawing pictures 
And then the pictures become a kind of dream world, which she seemingly kind of physically is able to enter when she's asleep. And she draws a house, which is the paper house of the title. Then she draws another child, like a, a boy, in the house that she's drawn. But then she discovers from her doctor that the child she has drawn is actually a real child who is another one of the doctor's patients who is very ill. And somehow they both seem to be able to get into this weird dream-drawn world that Marianne has created, and they kind of become friends. So that sounds like it would be quite sweet, but it's really not. It's really weird. It's really strange. It's very very dark it's very sinister and then it gets even more sinister when Marianne's father who is absent in the story is absent from her life we don't really know why but she seems to really adore him and misses him but when he appears in her dreams he appears as a kind of furious predatory monster who is intent on killing her and Mark at one point she draws him and crosses his eyes out so when he appears in the dreams his eyes are missing and he's furious and he's shouting at her because she's made him blind and you kind of get the impression that maybe he's been abusive to her in real life at some point physically abusive sexually abusive maybe it's kind of hinted that he might be an alcoholic but it's never quite clear and it's really odd and nightmarish and it's one of the few films there's quite a lot of films where they'll try and recreate the feeling of a nightmare and I think they're never successful I don't think they ever feel like actual dreams or actual nightmares but this one really does it things are happening that are kind of inexplicable and there's a real atmosphere of sort of of portentous atmosphere that hangs over the whole film. In fact, the only other film I can think of that does that for me is actually Eraserhead, David Lynch's Eraserhead, because it feels like a genuinely weird, unsettling dream that you just want to get out of. And Paper House is a bit like that, but it's about a couple of 11-year-olds and it's based on a children's book. I don't know what they were thinking. Oh, also, one of the children dies at the end, which again was unexpected. The, The boy, Mark, the boy that Marianne has drawn, but who also exists in real life, she finds out from the doctor that he's died he's been terminally ill and he's died and indeed the actor who played him also became seriously ill quite shortly afterwards and died so just to make things even more weird and unnerving it's one of those films that I think people that have seen it and people that saw it when they were kids especially really do remember it (laughs) it's just that not many people have seen it well I think you're right about it never having been intended as a children's film despite being based on the children's book and as you said adapted to a children's TV series earlier because it was made by working title films and it came in the middle of it was after my beautiful laundrette wish you were here and sammy and rosie get laid none of which are children's films in any way shape or form then there was this then they went straight onto the tall guy and this is like almost like i'm not saying artistically but like commercially they dropped the ball during that run of hugely acclaimed success i think my memory is that although it was all over magazines like starburst when it came out it then had a 15 certificate so you know Mm. it was hard to get to see also elsewhere my memory is it was given that sort of grudging promotion that british films got around them like yeah well if you want to go and see it that's your business might be good and that but we're not that bothered about british films and it sort of came and went i'm not sure is it even available on any digital platform now i don't know i used to have it on vhs because when i saw it on tv i became so obsessed with it that i then bought it on vhs i seem to remember it was quite hard to get hold of on vhs and that was in the 90s so if it is available i mean i don't know it might be i haven't found it if it is i think one of the reasons it maybe wasn't successful is it doesn't really fit into any genre really it's not strictly 
speaking a horror film, although it is frightening. It's about a kid, but it's not a kid's film. Everything about it just feels a bit off and everything about it is meant to feel a bit off. But that means that watching it means it isn't quite what I think people would have expected when they went to see it. When I saw it myself, as I say, I was about, well, about 12 or 13, I suppose. It was on Channel 4 and I just sort of, it came on and I just got sucked into watching it. And I think things when you sort of watch things just by chance, when you don't know what to expect, always often kind of stick with you more than things that you've deliberately watched. I don't know why. And I remember sort of finishing it and thinking that was so weird that was so odd and so unsettling and creepy and gloomy despite the fact that it's actually you know a a story about a kid's childhood and based on a children's book it's it's really peculiar and it doesn't quite fit into any particular genre and it certainly is well out of kilter from the other films that working title were making absolutely looking at that list again now and it just i cannot understand how it got through with the same production team and also when you look at do you know who directed it i don't know who directed it. bernard rose who got his break doing when i say doing pop videos doing really iconic ones like he did red red wine for ub40 small town boy by bronski beat welcome to the pleasure dome and i think maybe a couple of other frankie goes hollywood ones he also did Body Contact, that weird BBC One rock opera that Phil Norman talked about on here. And later, well, look, I say later, immediately after this, he did Candyman. And much later on, did Mr. Nice. So we are talking somebody who, right across all of that, is not au fait with children's entertainment at all. I mean, the most child-friendly you could say out of any of those is red, red wine. And that's about (laughs) some brummies drinking a lot of wine. And also, don't forget, the video's black about until they knock the wine over and it's red. We didn't see that coming. No, well, yeah. That's interesting that he made music videos because the nightmare sequences, the kind of the dream world sequences, are very kind of stylized, And because they are based on her drawings... They're very sort of stylized and have a very specific kind of greyish, washed out colour palette. And then also you kind of think like things that are based on a kid's drawings, you think of them as being sort of bright and cheerful. But it's not because she's just drawing with a pencil and she's not that good at drawing either. So the drawings are quiet. Things are kind of wonky. Lines are off. There's no colour really to speak of. The house that she draws is kind of when she goes there in the dream world, it's kind of set in a really kind of bleak, empty, blustery kind of meadow it's really weird really odd it's like the take on me video gone wrong if only she'd draw more yeah. market and some mechanics yeah if, if she'd been better at drawing it would have been <laughs> fine because <laughs> and in fact some of the things that happen in it are because she is not very good at drawing so she sort of doesn't like most kids when she draws things she kind of misses out details so when she draws mark in the house initially he's trapped upstairs because she hasn't drawn any stairs for him so he's stuck in a tiny bedroom looking out of the window looking sad on his own which is in itself really frightening there's one bit she tries to draw a bike but it's very hard to draw a bike and she can't quite get it right the proportions of the house are sort of way off and things like that and yeah then she draws her father but accidentally kind of makes him look terrible and then scribbles his eyes out and he then appears like raging because he's blind like some terrifying monster from a Greek myth or something played by Ben Cross and Chariots of Fire learn to draw before you start making yeah. sentient drawings <laughs> think is the message here yeah just take a few classes take a few <laughs> 
<laughs> just just become a bit more accomplished before you start breathing life into your hideous visions. But there was a lot of talent involved in this. There were people like Matthew Jacobs, the writer, did a lot of high-profile stuff later, including the Paul McGann Doctor Who. Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack. It's one of his yes, early yeah. credits. Something about it just didn't hang together, didn't connect with people. And I cannot quite pin down why that is. Yeah, I can't quite pin it down either. As I say, it does sort of, it's kind of quite genre-defying and it's quite sort of slow as well. A lot of stuff in it is left unexplained. If the actor who plays the girl in it, I think she's a really interesting choice because she's not very child actory at all. She's got short hair as well, which you don't often, I know that sounds like an odd observation to make, but you don't often see girls with short hair in films. She's quite an awkward sort of kid in it and she's quite sort of stroppy as well. You get the impression she's quite a difficult kid in some ways and everything about it is a bit off kilter and spiky and doesn't quite gel and I think that's intentional but then I think when people watch it it just makes them feel a bit like something's not quite right about it I think it's a real one-off I can't think of anything else like it really well what you could always do to make up for that shortfall is make your own British horror film (laughs) for which you could probably use your last choice and again nothing I could really use as a clip here so here's something equally terrifying when the walls come tumbling in lipstick Okay, that was Shaken Steven singing Lipstick Powder and Paint, <laughs> which in its own way is a little bit scary. So, Joe, it's not actually lipstick powder and paint you're using to do yourself up as a monster here, is it? No, it's more fake blood and a kind of weird uh, sort of substance that you mixed up to make fake skin. This is the Decca Horror Makeup Kit, which was sold as a kind of do-it-yourself horror makeup set that you could create special effects horror makeup with. And again, this was like Monsters of the Movies. This actually belonged to my older brother who got it for Christmas one year, I think. And it included, it had some sort of powder that you had to mix up with water that made a kind of rubbery substance so you could mould that or you were supposed to be able to mould it into scars and warts and wounds and things like that and there was a little bottle of fake blood in there I think there was possibly some vampire teeth it was in a black box and it had a picture of a kid with sort of very 70s hair like big 70s hair on the box with sort of varying amounts of scary prosthetics stuck to his face and some of them were quite gruesome I mean a lot of blood and horrible wounds and things like that and so on and it would have been absolutely brilliant like if it had worked <laughs> but it what it didn't it was it was absolutely rubbish it came with a really detailed instruction manual with like pictures of loads of different looks that you could do that i was absolutely fascinated by and i've got memories of my brother trying to get the powdery stuff to mix properly but it, either it didn't set or was impossible to kind of stick to your face and he just kind of gave up and then it sat for years in a cupboard and then i found it when i was a bit older and i had to go and it still didn't work <laughs> and also in the box were the bits of kind of fake aesthetic flesh things that my brother had tried to make years previously and they'd kind of gone hard and like shriveled into bits of sort of weird translucent plasticky bits that were sort of you know those rawhide chew things that you can buy for dogs <laughs> <laughs> but it was a bit like that it was a bit like 
sort of like yeah sort of slightly kind of hardened shriveled sort of greasy thing so it was so promising so promising but then so incredibly disappointing when you actually tried to do anything with it probably the most disappointing toy ever in my book even more disappointing than Mr Frosty well there are a lot of people online who do look back very fondly at it but they all say it didn't work didn't work it did not work and it was created by dick smith who worked on amongst other yeah. things the exorcist and yeah. later the hunger and so on and you know you can tell a lot of effort had gone into it but it very clearly did not work what i really loved was in the box art you mentioned the kid with the scary face and the very 70s yeah. hair there are very deliberate hollywood stylings to it including you know a representation of you know lights around the mirror yeah <laughs> yeah and i can't decide whether that was saying it's okay don't worry it's not real or you too could be a star if this stuff actually stuck to your face. I think it's you too could be you too could be Dick Smith, basically. You could be the person who does all the prosthetics in American Werewolf in London. You know, it's making you think that you could. Because at the time, there were quite a lot of behind the scenes type features on TV programs yeah. and things like that, where they would show you how this stuff was done. Probably a couple of years after this. But when Michael Jackson's Thriller came out, there was a VHS video that you could get that was the making of Thriller that told you how all the makeup was done and so on and so forth. So I think this was kind of, this sort of tapped into that a bit and the idea of making your own special effects and you too could create your own amateur horror film, except you won't be able to do that because none of this stuff works. I mean, all you needed was this and Monsters of the Movies for some plot ideas yeah, and yeah. the BBC Sound Effects Death and Horror album. Yes, you could make your own horror silly. film, but there were apparently a couple of variants of this. There was a Scary Faces one, which seems to be more specifically, I say aping, I'll come back to that in a minute, the sort of classic horror monsters, you know, your Dracula and your Frankenstein yeah. and so on. There was also a set called King of the Gorillas. Now, the King really? of the Gorillas are surely still a gorilla. It must have been Planet of the Apes inspired. Just a really it, it big must gorilla. Have been. Yes, yeah. So King Kong, effectively. But obviously they thought they'd get sued if they put apes. So yeah, it's King yeah. of the Gorillas. Although, what's that riffing on King Kong as well, maybe? Yeah. Because there was that King Kong remake around then. Yeah, the 70s King Kong as well. I don't know why Universal Monsters were so big for kids in the 70s and 80s, but they were for some reason. King Kong was one of them. So maybe, like you say, maybe a bit of King Kong, maybe a bit of Planet of the Apes. I can't believe that any amateur special effects makeup kit would enable you to produce a convincing ape, though. And also, there were, do you remember those sort of full-head ape masks that would always be... Oh, horrible, yeah. A bigger boy had on. Yeah. Above his, you know, walker tracksuit or whatever, would have an ape head, and he'd walk yeah. up and tap people on the shoulder and sort of silently yeah. look around. <laughs> But not yeah. being trying to be scary, trying to be comical. Yeah. Oh, I'm here, but yeah. I'm an ape. Yeah. <laughs> just casually, just casually <laughs> aping around. Like, yeah. Decker Toys, who made it, they seem to have been, you know, the, one of those weird toy manufacturers. You only seem to get in the 70s, who mm. couldn't seem to decide what they wanted to do. Because amongst other things I've come across that they did were, they did naughty figures specifically based on the Cosgrove Hall series. They did. Do you remember you could get, in inverted commas, costumes of things like Darth Vader and so on. It'd have a plastic mask yes. and like a plastic sort of full-length apron with a print. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, they were terrible, the weren't they? Yeah. yeah, they made them. They made the TARDIS tent, which, you know, is just like a plastic police box on the frame. And they also did the chemistry set, which looks to me like it should be cordoned off with, like, people with megaphones saying, do not approach. I don't remember any other horror makeup kits. I don't remember any other brands doing them. And the packaging really made it look like it would be a brilliant thing. But it was, yeah, it was shit. 
unfortunately. You did also mention Identist Spook by Remus Toys. Yes, Remus play kits were my favourite thing ever when I was a child because they were sort of pocket money kits that you could buy from the corner shop usually. Yeah, they were or, a sort of carousel, weren't they? Yeah, because they were always in like a flat wallet kind of packaging that were easy to store and stuff. And they always seemed to sell them in like the shop in a caravan park or a holiday camp. <laughs> the spa shop always had loads of them and you would get sort of bought them, you know, in the school holidays to kind of give you sort of something to do. And I associate them with school holidays for that reason. One of theirs that they did was they used to do ones where you basically had a background and little cardboard cutout pieces of something and you put those on the background and then they had like a, a plastic film over the top which you then put over and sort of wiped over it with a cloth and the static would kind of make it stick so you created a picture so one of those was identity spook which was sort of like a kind of like a frankenstein's monster head and you had lots of kind of weird like you know weird noses and bloodshot eyes and sort of scars and bits of hair and warts and things that you could position on the face to make various different scary faces i mean you could make about two scary faces if i'm being honest because there weren't that many bits included and they also the sort of static effect never really worked with the plastic film either anyway so still hours of fun hours of fun for all the family the fact that it was called identity spook always sort of kind of implies that it was kind of an identifit like a police identifit <laughs> it's the identity <laughs> part so you don't, need, you don't need to identify a spook so why is it identity spook is this an like, like at no point are the police ever going to need to make up a picture of this man <laughs> Like, have you seen this skull-snapping brute with uh, electric bolts in his neck? <laughs> I don't remember too much, but he looked like Rondo Hatton. Yeah, yeah, he looked a lot like Rondo Hatton. As well as Identity Spook, they also did a similar one, which I mean, instead of a face, it was like a whole body figure, a whole figure of a woman. It was clearly meant to be like bionic woman kind of thing, because you could put like different outfits on it and various kind of bionic body parts and things like that on her. But it was called, I think it was called Computer Girl. <laughs> <laughs> which I think I assume again for some sort of copyright reason I remember that one particularly because my brother and sister bought it for me when we were on holiday once and I had sunstroke and had spent a day in bed and they bought me that from the holiday camp shop to keep me busy while I was in bed Remus also used to do you know like letra set action transfer things where you would have a scene and you would have like those kind of rub on transfers that you scribble over with a pencil yeah. to transfer them to the background Remus also did them but Remus's ones always seem to be quite they always seem to be like battles or like quite weird because I had action transfers and they were normally like I had a jungle one and a space one and things like that well the Remus ones like I remember one of the Remus ones showed and this is so weird basically the death of Captain Cook so it showed Captain Cook landing, you know, on wherever it was that he died, or some like Tahiti or somewhere like that. But then it actually depicted him being sort of clubbed to death by some sort of tribesman. It was really, really odd. And there were like, you know, there was like there would be like a battle from the Napoleonic Wars or something like that, or really, really odd. <laughs> they were really cheap and really basic, so I guess they were a really handy thing for parents to be able to buy to sort of keep a kid quiet for a couple of hours. But for some reason, I found 
found them really exciting. I was always really pleased to have one bought for me. My grandparents used to buy me Remus items quite a lot. If they looked after me for a day, we'd sort of go to the corner shop and it would be I would be able to choose like some sweets and something from the Remus play kits display, which I would greatly enjoy playing with. Well, there was all this stuff around, but there's something that I wanted to mention that we wanted to bring up on here for quite a while now, which is it goes back to, you know, mentioning you said those sort of shops where you would get things like Remus kits by caravan parks and so on. We used to stay quite a lot with relatives in the coastal town where, you know, the ordinary shops would have things that you didn't get elsewhere in the country in them, including a lot of like, I don't know how they got there, but you know, comics. I remember getting comics in Spanish and trying to understand them. I don't mean I was given them, you know, like yeah. casually. I intentionally got them, but they had yeah. a lot of American ones, including a lot of the, not the actual Archie comics, but these would be digests of them, which would have about, you know, 15 or 20 issues in. And I was particularly taken with Josie and the Pussycats, because I very vaguely remember the Hanna-Barbera series of them. And obviously, even from a young age, I had a bit of a crush on Josie, who... <laughs> I would say any of my friends are sort of rolling their eyes and thinking, yeah, of course he did. But for anyone who doesn't know, Josie and the Pussycats were sort of a high school all-girl band who had adventures. Whereas, you know, the rest of the Archer universe was mainly about teenage angst, but they sort of got caught up in crime capers and so on. But in the early 70s, when the comics code was relaxed and it was possible to do, you know, they didn't have to get that approval sticker anymore. And you got things like, well, say, for example, you know, that's when Marvel brought in people like, Blade and Morbius and Howard the Mm. Duck obviously you know because you couldn't do satire before that but Archie Comics obviously wanted a piece of that action but because you know they couldn't really do anything scary with their teen titles and although that Sabrina the Teenage Witch that had been specifically around the comics code you know that was a teenage girl with teenage problems who just happened to be a witch Josie the Pussycats there'd been a kind of voodoo element from the start because Alexandra who was their rival who thought she should be the singer did actually do black magic by correspondence course to try and hypnotised them. Sometimes it went so far that in reprints they've been replaced to be, you know, I'd be learning psyops from the internet and so on. But they did do horror stories with them where they stayed in haunted houses and so on. But there was one that really thrilled me and terrified me in equal measure from, I think it was originally from 1973 called Vengeance from the Crypt. Where, putting long story short, they visit a mausoleum. Josie breathes in some of the dust from it and is possessed by a demon. <laughs> and so the whole strip is about... I'm going to say this may have been put by life choices in some ways. Basically, because they've gone there for a holiday. They've gone to a mausoleum for a holiday in the sun. <laughs> so you've got a busty redhead in the bikini screaming hate, kill, revenge. <laughs> trying to kill her friends. And it screams when they shove a Bible into her hands. And it didn't feel... Because they were all still in character. They still have Melody speaking in the sing-song voice and so on. But it felt really impactful and jarring. And, you know, given the way Josie the Pussycats have been rebooted in recent years, I think they tried to forget the horror interlude. And they, they probably... I was going to say, you know, probably straight after the adventure, they sang Letter to Mama or something. They did have a song called Voodoo. So they probably <laughs> did that after it. See, what it's interesting, because when I think of any kind of comic strip that was aimed at girls, like sort of teen girls, 
in Britain would absolutely have always been about things yes. like that. Because I don't remember, I don't remember any things like Misty and stuff. I remember pretty much all kind of girls' comic strips just being like that. Well, I loved Misty. Yeah. I, I was frequently told as a boy I shouldn't be reading it, but. Oh, it's brilliant. So good. So, so good. But like lots of girls' comics generally would always have comic strips in them in Britain where either someone would be orphaned and sent to live with kind of a cruel aunt in a haunted house or something gothic girls in peril in kind of gothic houses that might be haunted or where the aunt might be trying to kill them or something loads of time slips stories witches black magic possession all those things were, were par for the course but i can't imagine it playing as well for an american audience especially with the whole like satanic panic era in america and yeah, really interesting. Well, I hope we've not caused too much satanic panic in anyone listening to this. <laughs> if we haven't, we should just go round with some of that Deccan movie TV horror makeup on. On! Not on, obviously, because they won't stay on. But try and give them a bit of an interactive scare. You know, Bob Fisher recently on here said... Anyone listening who wanted to hit him with a custard pie was welcome to do so. So anyone wants to be scared by you in unconvincing horror makeup, I think. That's how you should reply to reply guys on Twitter. (laughs) I've done, I have done horror makeup. During lockdown, I amused myself by doing some horror makeup for Halloween, which I was able just to do with just some stuff that I had in my makeup collection. So you don't need the Decca horror makeup kit, to be honest. So I might do that again. I might do that again for Halloween this year. I put it on because I thought if we got any trick-or-treaters that I might be able to scare them but I, we didn't get any so I just sat at home with like a zombie face on all evening you could do the witch costume for blue peter book 18 <laughs> I think I might I think I might I might give that a go I might make some witch puppets if you can still buy if anyone knows where you can buy those old-fashioned dish mops like I might make them <laughs> Every day is Halloween in my house, to be fair. Well, I look forward to hearing all about that on the news. <laughs> Joe, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. About me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.